If you have your Bible tonight, and I hope you do, if you don't, there's one uh, in front of you uh, in the pew rack there. I want you to open it to the fourth book, the book of Numbers tonight. And in a little bit, we're going to be looking at one of the most interesting chapters in all of the Bible, one of the most interesting passages of Scripture, at least to me, in all of the Bible. Now, before we get into that, I want to ask a question. Is there anybody here tonight besides me? Who is a perfectionist? Anybody else that's a perfectionist or is it just me? Okay, then next week you need to preach online because nobody's raising their hand. I think one person. That has been something that I have always been or uh, a perfectionist. And it's, it's not a strong quality. It's a weakness and something I've tried to, uh, in fact, I think recently God set me free from that. And I'll tell you how he did it. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was home one night and my big screen TV in my living room went out. And I thought, now, God, we're quarantined in our homes, and now I don't have a TV that I can watch. Now, this is just not right. Well, I have a, had a small television in my bedroom, and so one night I moved that TV uh, into the living room. And for the last 15 or 16 months, I've just watched a small TV instead of a big TV. It's no big deal. I was able to see what I needed to see and didn't probably uh, need anything bigger than that. Well, anyway, after about 15 or 16 months, I thought, well... I've been putting it off. I just need to go buy a TV. And so I went to Best Buy one Saturday night, kind of just spur of the moment. I hadn't studied, thought about, researched anything on TVs. I just went and bought a TV. And a few days later, they brought the TV to my house, and they set it up, and the fella left, and I turned it on, sat out in my chair, and I said, it's too big, and it's too bright. I had a 51-inch television previously, and so I upgraded to a 55 and at least for me, probably with the brightness, it just, I just felt like it was too big, and too, too big and too bright. And so the next day, I go back to Best Buy, and I said, listen, I bought a TV, too big, need to return it, get a smaller version. I'd like to get a 50-inch. They said, no problem. We'll make the exchange. Made the exchange, and uh, I went home, and I was looking on my phone at what, I had already, at what I had just bought, the second TV, and I thought, well, you know, they charged me $150 more than this says, so I'm going to go back up there tomorrow and straighten this out. Went back. And they said, well, the reason the one you bought yesterday was 150 more, it's a newer version, it's brighter. I said, that's part of my problem. I want a dim TV. And so they said, well, okay, we can swap that out. And so now think about this. I'm at Best Buy. I've already returned a television that I still have. I'm returning now. I've actually, I have already returned another TV that they never even have delivered yet. And I'm buying a third TV Plus, you've got the delivery and setup charge for all these different transactions. So it was so confusing. The people at Best Buy were so nice. In fact, they're so nice. I just am thinking about going and buying another TV and giving it away to somebody because they've just been so helpful. But they got four people behind the counter back there, and they said, Sir, we know we can fix this. It's just we don't know how to fix it because it's very confusing. And so they said there's a part of Best Buy called the bridge, and they said, sometime when the Best Buy is dealing with a customer, it's like the road goes out and you've got to have a bridge. And so if you'll just give us two or three hours, somebody will call you and work it out. And they did. And a few days later, they brought the TV, got my new TV all set up, perfect, everything is fine. But in that experience, I said to myself, in fact, I, I said to myself while I was watching these four people behind the counter trying to figure this thing out, and the pain that they had on their face and the expression, even though they were nice, they were so confused and trying to figure this out. That I said to myself, 
I think that's why my stomach gets in knots sometimes. What's happening on their face sometimes happens on my stomach. I get tense. And so I said to myself, the day of being a perfectionist is over. And I'm telling you, for the last six weeks, my inner circle doesn't even recognize me. I'm a totally different person because I don't worry about it, anything anymore. Because I said to myself, the day of being a perfectionist is over. I should have, in retrospect, kept the TV, adjusted to it. I would have in two or three days, and I would have spared myself all of that back and forth that I went through. Now, I tell that story not so you'll know what my TV situation is because I'd rather doubt you care what my TV situation is. I tell that story tonight to make this point. In life, as we go through daily life, it is a healthy thing if we can adopt an attitude that says, you know what? It's not perfect, but it's good enough. It's good enough. It's not, TV's not perfect, house not perfect, yard's not perfect, car's not perfect. Nothing is perfect, but you know what? It's good enough and I'm going to just have to live with it, you know? And so I think that is important in life to get to that point, or else we drive ourselves and everybody around us crazy. Having said that, if we take that same attitude that says nothing's perfect, it's good enough, it's no big deal, I just accept it. If we take that attitude and apply it to our spiritual lives, it is can be disastrous. What I'm saying to you, and you ought, to, you ought to really think about this, if it's the paint on your wall, if it's something you've just purchased, if it's a TV, or whatever it might be, just say it's not perfect, but it works, and it's good enough, and I'm not going to worry about it. But if you take that attitude into your relationship with God, it can be devastating. Now, in the book of Numbers, chapter number 32, I want to show you a group of people. Now, the children of Israel are traveling into the promised land. They're just very close to the promised land. And there was a group of people, two and a half of the 12 tribes, who got to a particular place before they entered the promised land. And when they got there, here's what they, they looked around. And they said, it's good enough. It's not the promised land. It's not where God said we could end up. But you know what? It's good enough. Look in Numbers chapter 32, verse 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, and in verse 3, they're naming out all these different regions and towns. Verse 4, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, now these are the tribes speaking to Moses, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. In other words, Reuben and Gad, and as we find out later in the passage, the half-tribe of Manasseh is in with this thing with them, and they are saying to Moses, Moses, we have a lot of animals, and this land is beautiful. It, we know it's not the promised land. We can only imagine how wonderful that is, but for us, this is good enough. Please, Moses, let us stay in the land of good enough. Moses said to them, basically, that's a strange request. 
Why would you refuse to go into the promised land and live in the land of good enough? But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you have this land. We'll let you settle here, but you have to go into the promised land. You have to fight with your other tribes, with your brothers, and possess the land. And then after the fight is over, you can come out and you can live in the land that you think is good enough. And they said, deal. They did it. They fought for, with their other people, their brothers and sisters, and they came back and they lived in the land that was short of the promised land. It was the land of good enough. Now, I wonder tonight, the beginning of this message, how many people here would say, John, hadn't thought of that expression, I hadn't thought of the fact that I'm living in the land of good enough, but just hearing you say that in these opening remarks, it makes me think that maybe that's where I am living my life in the land of good enough. I want to show you some things tonight about the land of good enough. First of all, in the land of good enough, here's what we find. We find, they're going to put it up here, that our basic needs are met. We have a place to live, place to sleep, food to eat, clothes to wear, car to drive, most time a job that we have. We're doing better than most people. We look around us and we say, you know what? I may not, quote, be living in the promised land of God's fullness and God's richness and God's best and God's blessings, but as I look around, I'm doing better than most everybody I know. I seem to be happier than most people. I seem to be sinning less than lots of people. It's Wednesday night. I'm in church or I'm watching church online tonight. So surely I'm doing better than most people out there where you may be. Also, you might would say in the land of good enough that life is better than it was before I got saved. You might say, you know what? I'm not as happy and jubilant and joyful and peaceful and productive for God and, and all these things as I could be and as I ought to be or maybe as I used to be. But when I think about what my life was like before I got saved, think about what my life's like now, it's better now than it was then. And so, you know what? I just say it's good enough. I'll tell you something else about the land of good enough. Deep down, even though all those other things are true, we know that there's got to be more to the Christian life than what we have experienced. Something in our heart says there's got to be more to being a Christian. <laughs> there's got to be more to, the, to Christianity than what I have experienced so far in my life. And so tonight, we're going to be thinking about moving from the land of good enough to the land of more than enough, where we say, you know what? I'm not just settling for something that I thought was good, I'm pursuing God, and I'm moving to the land of good enough. Now, in the, as we think about moving to the land of more than enough, the question is, how do we do that? And this is an interesting feeling I had, and time will tell if it was just me or if it was God. But about two hours ago, when I was home finishing this, I had a feeling that there's going to be somebody in this service tonight who doesn't go to this church. In fact, I actually had a feeling there's going to be somebody in this service tonight who doesn't even live in the Houston area or doesn't live at least in the Pasadena area. And for whatever reason, you have come to this service tonight and you are living in the land of good enough. That is, you have settled for something less than God's best for your life. And the feeling that I had in my heart tonight was that in the preaching of God's Word on this Wednesday night, in the midst of this pandemic 
that is changing the, that has changed life as we know it, at least temporarily, that somebody tonight is about to have their life forever changed. And when I come to the end of the sermon tonight and read you the illustration that I want to read you, you'll know why I felt that way, and I still feel that way tonight. And so I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand or prove or disprove me, but I'll tell you this, if I were listening to what some preacher just said, and I lived in Dallas, or if I lived in Austin, or if I lived in New Zealand, and I ended up at the First Baptist Church in Pasadena tonight, and the man up there preaching said, I have a feeling tonight that somebody who's not from here is about to have their life forever changed. I would say, God, I must certainly tonight be in the midst of your will, under the cloud, in this room tonight to listen to the Word of God preach and explain to me how my life can be changed and how I can get out of the land of good enough and move into the land of more than enough. One of a, a pastor whom I deeply admire years ago was preaching a series of sermons to his congregation in Miami, Florida. And he was preaching through the book of Galatians. And he was teaching about the freedom that we have in Christ. And that's what the book of Galatians is all about. And one Sunday morning after the service, he was standing at the front, and people were coming by telling him they enjoyed the sermon and so on. And one lady came by and said, Pastor, I want you to know these sermons the last few weeks about our freedom in Christ and understanding that we don't have to save ourselves or be good enough to earn your acceptance, but just trusting Christ, that's, that's, that's where our freedom is and just, just depending on Him. She said, Pastor, I just want you to know my life has been changed in this series. She walked out of the sanctuary. Everybody walked out of the sanctuary. Pastor standing at the, sanctuary, at the floor of the sanctuary by himself, and he said he looked up to heaven, and he said, God, I don't understand it. I'm the one preaching the sermons about freedom in Christ, and yet I feel as though in my own life that I'm in bondage. Now, it wasn't that he didn't know he was saved. He knew he was saved, but he was just struggling to come to that place of freedom and victory and overcoming and e the ease that God has for us as we're living our lives in the center of his will. And so if it can happen to a pastor, it can happen to any of us. And so tonight we're thinking, how can I move out of the land of good enough to the land of more than enough? Well, I want to mention, we're going to look some verses up, but I want to mention some things to you as we do. First of all, first thing you have to do is you have to have complete confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ, by confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, turn to Numbers chapter 33. Because you're in 32, just turn over a page. We're in Numbers chapter 33, and Moses is kind of reviewing the trip that the Israelites had made out of Egypt, and now they're almost at the promised land. In fact, it turned, I want to show you an interesting verse. Go to Deuteronomy chapter number 1. We just would seldom ever be this close to it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, look in verse number 2, because this is an interesting verse. It says, it is, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. That's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Sire, that's down by the Dead Sea, to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was on the southern tip of the Promised Land. Now, notice what this Bible says. From Mount Sinai or from uh, Mount Horeb, same mountain, to the promised land, it should take 11 days. It's approximately 150 miles walk, 150 mile walk. And so if you walk 13 and a half miles a day, 13.6 miles a day, in 11 days, you would be there. And so that's how long it should have taken the Israelites to get out of Egypt into the promised land. 11 days, less than two weeks. 
It took them 40 years to get into the promised land because, why did it take that long? They were complaining. They were doubting God. They were blaming Moses. They had a horrible attitude. They worshiped other gods. Uh, I mean, everything that they could have done wrong, they did go wrong. They disobeyed God on very basic things. And so an 11-day trip took 40 years. Now, back to Numbers chapter 33, because Moses now is reviewing how they came out of Egypt. And notice what it says, chapter 33, verse 3. They departed from Ramses, that's down in Egypt, in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. And so notice it says, when they left Egypt, they came out with boldness. They came out with confidence. Why did they have confidence? Because God had saved them the night before by the death of those animals, those lambs, and the blood of those lambs being placed over the door of their house. And when the death angel passed by, they were all spared, and and they lived. And so as a result of that, after having been under the blood, now they had confidence that God was with them and that God was going to take care of them. So the first thing we have to do, if we're going to live an overcoming, victorious, abundant you know, all, whatever adjective you want to put on it, if we're going to live one of those types of, that type of life, we have to have complete confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever sinned in the past? Say amen. All right. How many of you wish you never would have sinned in the past? Say amen. That's, that's all of us, sure. So that means we've all sinned in the past. We all wish we never would have sinned. So what that can produce is guilt and regret. And so it would be possible, since we've all sinned in the past, and since we all wish we never would have sinned in the past, it would be possible to go through our entire lives with guilt and regret. And yet if we go through our whole lives with guilt and regret, we're not going to be living a very abundant, happy, overcoming life, living a very defeated, depressed life. And yet the only way that we can get get rid of the guilt and regret is to have confidence that on the day of our salvation, when we came to Jesus Christ, and every day since then, since we have all sinned since we got saved, we didn't, all of our sins are not pre-conversion sins. We still sin. And every time we come to Jesus Christ with our sins, that His blood washes our sins away. You believe that? Say amen. So what does that do? It, what it should do is produce confidence. The blood of Jesus has forgiven me of every sin that I've ever committed in my, own, in, in, my, in my life. In my life, in your life, in all of our life, they're all forgiven. So what does that do? Immediately, if we believe that. Now, I think in church, we all say, I believe that. But you get home tonight and start thinking about your own life. And you think, well, I don't know about the way I acted there, the way I thought there, whatever I did then. I don't know about God. I don't know if God really has forgiven me of that. Well, if you, quit, if you don't have confidence in the blood of Jesus to wash those sins away, then you're going to settle short, uh, stop short of the promised land and settle for a life of good enough instead of more than enough. So that's the first thing. We have to have confidence in Christ's blood. Let me just make this statement tonight in case that person is here from Austin 
from Dallas or San Antonio or some other state, and God had this for you tonight, whatever sin that you have ever committed has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven that sin, he has forgotten that sin, and he will never bring that sin up again. That's the first step in victory. Because I think what happens a lot of times in life, I'll just belabor this point one just for a moment more. I think what happens a lot of times in life, a person never can really get loose or can really grasp that they have been forgiven of something in the past. And so as a result of that, they really lose all motivation for trying to live a holy life in the present. I mean, I think sometimes a person could just say, well, you know, well, I remember when I was the student minister here, there'd be a lot of times a student would come up to me, and especially when we were having one of those true love waits and, you know, be pure until you get married and so on. And there would always be, it seemed that somebody come up to me and they would say, John, we're making this commitment that we're going to be pure until we get married, and I've already lost my purity. And so it's too late for me. And so I can't make this commitment because I've already blown it. And they would normally be crying, and it would be, it would be a very difficult conversation. And I would say to them, I would say, well, you know, what, what you did in the past was you shouldn't have done that, okay? And you just told me you know you shouldn't have done it, so, so we acknowledge that was a sin. Have you asked God to forgive you? Yes. Do you believe He has forgiven you? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, if you believe He's forgiven you, then in, your, in God's eyes, you're as pure as you were before that ever happened. Because he, you, white as snow. So you're just as pure as if that never had happened. And so what you need to do is draw a line in the sand. And this weekend when we're all making this commitment to be pure, you need to make a commitment that from this moment on, you're going to be pure. And that made sense to them. And they understood that. And they made the commitment. And they moved on in life. But what I'm saying is, had somebody not told them that, it would be easy for them to have said, well, you know, I've already lost my purity, so what difference does it make? And see, when the person says that, they will continue to do things that are impure. Because, but the reason is they never have understood that that sin could be taken off the books and forgiven and that they could be clean from that moment on. And so as we think about moving into the promised land, if we don't make peace with guilt and regret in the past, it will trip us up all the way to the grave. Now, I'll tell you a second thing we have to do, not only by having confidence in Christ's blood, but by refusing to tolerate what we ought to obliterate. That is, sometimes there are things in our lives that we have to deal with. Now, in Numbers 33, look down in verse number 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. That's where they worship their pagan gods. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I've given you the land to possess it. Look at the verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. God said through Moses to the people, listen, when you get to that promised land, you're going to find people worshiping other gods. You're going to find the altars where they worship the other. You're going to find all kinds of things that are bad. Here's what I want you to do. Get rid of it. 
I'm giving you the land, but I'm telling you on the front end, the land is dirty and polluted, and I'm giving you the charge, clean up the land and get rid of that junk. And he said, if you don't, it's going to be like an irritant in your eye, like a thorn in your side. And it, as if we read on tonight, we know that there were a lot of things that they didn't drive out, and it caused them all kinds of problems. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, here's the application for us. Sometimes there are things in our lives, sins, habits, attitudes, actions, behaviors, whatever, that don't belong in the life of a believer. And what God is saying to us is, listen, not only do you need to trust me to forgive whatever you may have done, whatever you may have done wrong in the past, but what you need to do is t- remove from your life anything right now that doesn't belong there. So let me just ask this question tonight. At this time in your life, is there anything in your life, anything, no matter how large or small it may be or how large or small it may seem to you, is there anything that doesn't fit the life of a believer? And if you say the answer to that question is yes, I'm telling you tonight, we just read it. Here's what God is saying to you. Obliterate it. Drive it out. Remove it. Be done with it. Don't tolerate that in your life. So that's the second thing we have to do. Uh, Remove those things. The third thing we have to do if we're going to move into the promised land is by never being satisfied with anything less than God's best for our life. Now, look in chapter 34, the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan and its boundaries. So God said, here's the land, and he laid out the boundaries for them. And he said, all of this is yours. Now, sadly, the children of Israel never did possess all the land that God had given them. They possessed some of it, but they never possessed all the land that God had given them. And so what I'm saying tonight is, if we want to have this overcoming life more than enough instead of just good enough, We have to come to a place where we say, you know what? I'm not going to be satisfied with anything less than God's best for me. Now, here's what that means. Tonight, if you say, well, you know, John, I'm not as peaceful as I wish I were. I'm not as happy as I wish I were. I'm not as fulfilled as I wish I were. I'm not as positive as I wish I were. I don't have as, as much faith as I wish I did. You could just make the list. I'm not as holy as I wish I was. You can make a list. If you have any of those things in your life, and we all do from time to time, you have to say, I refuse to be satisfied until I receive and experience the best that God has for me. So I hope I'm making that point clear tonight. I think a lot of people have just accepted, and a lot of times in church we say, well, you know, we all sin, nobody's perfect, and it is true, we all sin, nobody's perfect. I'll be the first to say that. But, you know, I really believe the fact is we should be able to go several days at a time without sinning. Maybe longer than that, maybe shorter than that. I mean, the fact is, this is another sermon for another time, but we have, living on the inside of us, the spirit of the one who lived on this earth and never sinned. And so it is true that nobody's perfect and we all sin. And we need to say that so that, so, so that we, none of us get the big head or, 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 or that we become delusional. But there's another side of that coin, and the other side of that coin is 
as children inhabited and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, friend, we don't have to sin. Now, nobody said amen on that, but, but it's true. We don't have to sin. It is possible. It's not likely. It probably won't happen because even the Christians like Paul, they sinned all the way. They struggled with it. But what I'm saying is if we're walking in the Spirit, instead of sinning 30 or 40 or 50 times a day, we should be able to click off two or three days where maybe we only sin two or three times or, or maybe not at all. So that's just a nugget, something to think about. But don't just, don't just accept nobody's perfect, we all sin, and let that give you an excuse to live a life of spiritual medi- mediocrity. What we ought to do is to say, you know what, nobody's perfect, we all do sin. And the fact is, I'm probably still going to sin many times before I get to heaven. But I don't have to, and I'm not going to settle for it, and I'm not going to try to. I'm going to try to live above that. Now, that's something we need to deal with. And then the last thing I want to say, if we're going to live a, a better than life, a, a, a life uh, in the land of, of more than enough, we have to be willing to live within the boundaries that God has laid out for us in the Bible. One of the reasons God gave the children of Israel these boundaries is so they would know the land that was rightfully theirs. And God said, take the land and don't settle for anything short of that. Another reason God gave them the boundaries is so that they would know that anything on the outside of that boundary was off limits, enemy territory, stay away from it. So on the one hand, what I love about the Bible is how balanced it is. On the one hand, God is saying, here's the land, inhabit it. On the other hand, God is saying, I've put some boundaries around your life. Live within those boundaries. Don't cross a bound. If God said, thou shalt not, don't say, well, it's no big deal. I'm going to do it anyway. No, you stepped over the boundary, and you have messed yourself up. So, we're thinking tonight about the question, am I living in the land of good enough, or Am I living in the land of more than enough? And we're also thinking, if I'm just living in the land of good enough, how can I live in the land of more than enough? How can I live the life that God intends, intended and intends for me to live? Now, I want to share something tonight, and, uh, and then we'll be done. But as I was home finishing this sermon, and I thought, now, God, there's got to be an illustration of somebody who was saved and who loved you and who was serious about you, and yet that person was living a life in the land of good enough, and something happened in that person's life. They had an experience, and it changed their life, and they moved into the land of more than enough. And I was just sitting home in my study thinking about that, and I didn't have to think long, because immediately I thought about a man named Hudson Taylor. Some of you know the name of Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China. Loved God with all of his heart. He was saved when he was young. He knew God had a calling on his life. He became a missionary. He moved to China. He had been there for about 15 years. He was 37 years old, serving God, doing all the right things, and yet living a defeated life. When he was 37, he became so discouraged that he wrote a letter to his mother, uh, living back in the United States, and he says this to his mom, My own position becomes continually more and more responsible and my need greater of special grace to fill it. But I have continually to mourn that I follow at such a distance and learn so slowly to imitate my precious master. I cannot tell you how I am buffeted sometimes by temptation. 
I never knew how bad a heart I had. Yet I do know that I love God and love His work and desire to serve Him and so on. And he's just telling his mom his frustration. He was tired physically, spiritually, emotionally, and he was struggling with sin. And at the end of his letter, the author of this book goes on to say, The human heart has no desires that God cannot satisfy. That may be the best statement I made all night. The human heart has no desires that God cannot satisfy. And so tonight, if you're longing for peace and joy and happiness and fulfillment and meaning and purpose, it's all in God. The Christian's greatest difficulty is to take literally the promises of the Savior. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We are told to come to him, not to some friend, not to some experience, not to some feeling, not to some frame of mind. Now, I like this next sentence. We are not even told just to come to the Word of God. Rather, we are to go through the Word to the person of the Lord Jesus Himself. I just thought it was just beautiful. Well, about this time, Hudson Taylor is living a, a defeated life. It says, The way to heart satisfaction and rest of spirit for Hudson Taylor was learned from a fellow missionary, a man named John McCarthy. McCarthy wrote a letter to Hudson Taylor, and in the letter he said, To let my loving Savior work in me His will. My sanctification is what I would live for by His grace. Abiding, not striving nor struggling. Looking off unto Him. Trusting Him to, for present power. Trusting Him to subdue all inward corruption. Resting in the love of the Almighty Savior and the conscious joy of complete salvation. A salvation from all sin. This is His, is his Word. Willing that His will should truly be supreme. That is not, this is not new, and yet it is new to me. I feel as though the first dawning of a glorious day has arisen in me. I held it with trembling, yet with trust. Christ literally seems to me now to be my all in all, all of my power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. He led me into this realization of unfathomable fullness. Hudson Taylor's reading this letter, this missionary saying, I have found in Jesus... Not in serving Jesus, not in working harder, not in trying harder, but I have found in looking to Jesus, in resting in Jesus, in depending on Jesus, that He is not only my Savior, but He is my all. And everything that irritated me or stressed me out before, by looking to Him, He's changed my whole life. Hudson Taylor said, as I read, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus. And when I saw, oh, how the joy flowed. His fellow missionaries said of him, Mr. Taylor went out, a new man in a new world, to tell what the Lord had done for his soul. He wrote a letter back to his sister in England. Maybe that's where his mother was living in England. But he wrote a letter to his sister, and he said, As to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so difficult. But listen to the next sentence. But the weight and the strain are all gone. Whereas once I was blind, now I see. The Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. Mr. McCarthy, who wrote the letter, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, saw the light before I did. He wrote, and, and Hudson is quoting the letter, he said, I quote this now from memory. 
not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. And so instead of feeling overwhelmed by the work, you can imagine if you're a missionary in China, separated from your family in a culture that is unfamiliar to you, and you've been there 15 years, and the, the, the thing's not growing, and people aren't being saved, and you're wondering, did God even send me here? And the work of it all, and the burden of it all, it's on you, and it's pulling you down, such to the extent that at 37, he wrote to his mother and just poured out his soul. And providentially, this other missionary wrote him a letter and said, Hudson, I don't know how it is with you, but I went through a season in my life where I was a defeated Christian. I had the weight of the world on me. The burden of it all was on my shoulders. But I learned that all I had to do was look up and away to Jesus and to look to Him and to lean on Him and to trust in Him and depend on Him, and He would lift from me this burden. And what I'm saying tonight, and more importantly, what God is saying tonight, whether you're from Austin or Deer Park, wherever you're from tonight, if there's anything in your life defeating you, burdening you, weighting you down, instead of trying harder, Instead of making a resolution, instead of gritting your teeth or seeking some experience, look to Jesus and say, Lord, as I have trusted you to save me, I trust you now to deliver me. As I have trusted you to save me, I trust you, God, to liberate me. If I have, as I have trusted you to save me, I trust you, God, to empower me, to energize me, and to lift this burden off of me. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. How do we live the Christian life? The same way we began it. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Turning from sin. Turning to Christ. Trusting in Him and letting Him be our all in all. Amen.